from you to Africano, the Lelemaso for organizing aid in Africa. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, people complain that I don't speak that much, so I just wanted to check. Um, so with us today, we have three distinguished guests, um, and I'm very happy um, to be able to say welcome to them. Um, so we're going to start with a little bit of an introduction uh, with uh, one of our guests, uh, Indra de Suiza. Uh, he is a professor at NTNU, and he has previously worked uh, at the International Peace Research Institute uh, in Oslo, Rio, uh, and the University of Bonn in Germany. Uh, his research interests are primarily in the field of political economy, and he has published widely in top journals. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, I hope I have a chance to meet all of you this evening somehow at some point. Uh, thank you for the kind invitation. I'm very happy to be uh, uh, in the Oslo weather rather than the Trondheim weather right at the moment. So thank you. Uh, yes, so uh, I have, uh, I think, a broad mandate to talk uh, generally about uh, the larger picture about the aid. I'm not an Africa expert. Uh, I usually work with theory and large data. Uh, I have my favorite cases, but uh, uh, I can't call myself an Africa expert. So I can't call myself an expert in anything, but uh, uh, I have a job that sort of uh, works in this area, so I can say something. Uh, if we can get this started, uh, I was kind of told that, you know, don't make this a lecture, uh, don't prepare our slides and all that, but I had to give some stylized facts uh, to start with so that you get some sense of the broad picture and uh, what is it that we are talking about. Uh, so I was being facetious and uh, uh, called this some silly facts just so that we ground ourselves uh, in some, uh, some, something silly. Uh, to guide the discussion. Okay, so um, let me talk broadly about it. Uh, I published a little bit in this area. I'm interested in the effects of aid. Uh, I'm interested. Uh, I'm interested in the determinants of aid. Uh, why do some countries give aid to to some people and not to others, uh, uh, and so on. So uh, those things out there. Um, so if you can go to the first uh, slide, Hilda. So this is just a very simple uh, per capita income, which is what economists and most people uh, try to gauge the wealth of, uh, of people. Uh, per capita income on average doesn't tell you anything about the distribution of income, but it's the average income in a country. Uh, and you can see sub-Saharan Africa, the red line, uh, in the 1960s uh, was above what we would call uh, low-income countries, low and middle-income countries today, uh, and uh, sub-Saharan Africa's per capita income has not risen very much, as you can see. Uh, that uh, uh, top line there is, of course, global income, the world as a whole, which also includes Africa, but in general, that's the general picture about per capita income in 
uh, constant uh, 2015 US dollars. And there's been some movement in the low and middle income countries uh, that has shown some upward trend, uh, particularly since about the uh, 1990s, uh, um, uh, early mid 80s uh, and uh, up. So um, Africa's general, this is Sub-Saharan Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa's general stagnant uh, trend uh, seems to be there in the data. Now, per capita income does not mean that other indicators of development have not changed. And those have generally changed for the better. So you can think about child mortality rates, you can think about health, you can think about longevity, right? People living longer and so on. Uh, and of course, Sub-Saharan Africa is 48, 50 something countries uh, and they're all extremely heterogeneous, right? So this is just an average, silly statistic. Uh, you can go to the next. This is uh, ODA, which is Overseas Development Assistance, and a share of country's GDP. So how valuable to that country was the ODA that they received, right? So that share is there, and you can see uh, the share rose in Sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa gets the largest per GDP average share. And that has come down since about the early 90s. Uh, but Sub-Saharan Africa gets a large share of their GDP in terms of charity, to use another word for it. Uh, OK, next one. This is something that I wanted to throw in there. Uh, just because I had looked at these statistics on a paper that I worked on with some people earlier about the question of climate change and, and, and uh, yeah, problems. But if you look at production indexes, the index is 100 in 2014, 15, uh, uh, 16 uh, years as an average. That's the index is at 100 and then you can then look at how countries did uh, over, over time. <coughs> and you can see that there's nothing really hampering production. This is, again, an average for the Sub-Saharan African region. Uh, in that paper, we delve down into individual countries, particularly ones that are rain-fed agricultural economies in the Sahel area that usually people think of as being affected by weather change. Uh, Mauritania, Sudan, places like that. Uh, <coughs> uh, and their production indexes are all going up too. There are some countries where war and conflict have affected their production, but not necessarily countries uh, that we would think have, uh, are being affected by global uh, changes. Uh, so one is crop production, the other is food production. Uh, you know, there's Ethiopian Airlines flight every day from uh, Addis Ababa to uh, Oslo. Uh, 
largely carrying your flowers that's in your, uh, in your stores, right? Uh, so production doesn't seem to be a problem if it's properly organized and done. Okay. Uh, this is uh, a statistic also that interests me, the idea of economic freedom or, or market freedom, market institutions, how free are people to transact, uh, how, uh, how harassed are people by their governments if they're doing well, you know, I'm talking about things like taxes and, and regulations and uh, president's brother stealing your factory and things like that. Things that we take for granted that doesn't happen. Uh, property rights, respect, uh, how free is the central banker to set his policies. Uh, uh, Norway can teach the rest of the world how to have independent central bankers. Uh, okay, that was in the past, but fine. <laughs> Sorry, bad joke. Um, uh, yeah, uh, we, the things we take for granted, right? So governments printing money, things like that. Does that happen a lot? And we would think that in an economy where that happens a lot, economic freedoms are constrained. In other words, people's lives are determined by uh, places of power, and it tends to be arbitrary. It's not institutionalized in any way. Hmm? Uh, and you can see uh, that sub-Saharan Africa, relative to the industrial, uh, industrialized countries, where we take these things for granted, uh, tends to struggle. Things have improved, but there is a large gap in this area. If I uh, put uh, East and Southeast Asia, East and Southeast Asia somewhere up where the industrialized countries are. Um, okay. Uh, so uh, this is just something for us to think about. Where can we make improvements that will allow us to try to think about how to move people out from here to there? Uh, next one. Uh, economic freedoms generally go with things <coughs> like political freedom. So I'm guessing that many of you have read uh, the famous book, Why Nations Fail, uh, by Asamoglu and Robinson. Um, they've been writing a lot about uh, this question that had preoccupied the minds of many, many people since, I guess, Aristotle. Uh, and their argument is that free or inclusive political institutions tend to give inclusive cause, create inclusive economic institutions, and this is the stuff of development. It's not geography, it's not culture, uh, uh, take North and South Korea. Uh, North Korea is a failure by most, uh, most indicators. South Korea is a massive success. How massive? They just surpassed Japan in per capita income. So South Koreans are richer than the Japanese. This was a country that had suffered complete devastation 60 years ago. So it can be done, <laughs> And so think of North and South Korea. What's the difference? It can't be climate. It can't be geography. It can't be culture, right? It's all the same. And so it has to be the institutions. How inclusive 
are the institutions in South Korea and how extractive are the institutions in North Korea. And by extraction, we mean everything like no property rights, no ability to invest, no ability to do what you want to do, right? Um, okay, so you can see that this gap is also, remember in this group in Sub-Saharan Africa, there's a lot of heterogeneity, but as a group, uh, it's an underperformer. So without these inclusive political institutions, whether or not you're going to have inclusive economic institutions like we, what we take for granted, uh, is, is uh, unclear and not sure. <coughs> now you can, uh, Singapore, uh, Hong Kong, are good examples of where there was no inclusive political institutions, but they had very inclusive economic institutions. Hong Kong and Singapore are again, like South Korea, massive successes. Hong Kong was a refugee camp in the 1950s. It was a refugee camp. There was nothing else there. These were refugees from Chinese, the Chinese Civil War that were just ended up in the lap of the British. And the British said, how do we now run this camp? And the best way was to leave them alone. So the governor of Hong Kong uh, was a, a, a keen student of uh, Adam Smith. Uh, his name is uh, John Cowperthwaite, a, a, a Scotsman. Uh, nobody's heard of him. He should get a Nobel Prize. Uh, but he simply did not allow the British government to mess with Hong Kong. He just ran Hong Kong hands off. And the people just flourished. Okay, so that's a, it's a great sort of story, but a story that is illustrative. Singapore also a very, very uh, similar story. Okay, what can I say in this grand scheme of thing about aid? Uh, what can I talk about? Norwegian aid, um, total global aid is about a hundred billion dollars. A hundred billion dollars is the GDP of a small, poor country. Uh, Norwegian aid is about 40 billion krona a year. Uh, about 25 to 30% of it goes to the core budgets of multilateral institutions, which Norway supports, the UN. Uh, and uh, the rest, uh, about 15, 16% <coughs> is uh, handled by the UD directly for various projects, programs, uh, uh, buying support, uh, <laughs> okay, uh, solving civil war, uh, all good things, right, I'm not uh, snickering. Uh, and then the rest, uh, about 70, 80 countries have to divide up uh, these little things. Uh, for many countries, uh, the, this is like a, a few, I mean, it doesn't, you know, it, you're talking about one, two, three percent of their own production, uh, in the, or their, uh, sorry, their government budgets in Norwegian aid. Uh, so think to yourself, what are our expectations from it? What are our expectations? What do we expect it to perform when it might be very little? very, very fractured and fractionalized, in other words, uh, going to 
bits and pieces here and there around the world, not coordinated as such for solving one big problem uh, as we would understand one big problem to be global health, something like that. Um, and uh, and it's uh, uh, very, very, according to the experts, very, very uncoordinated, uncoordinated. The Americans are doing this, the Norwegians are doing that, the Swedes are doing something else, uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, therefore, it might be too little, too late, too, uh, uh, too um, inconsequent, too, too, uh, of, uh, yeah. Too little. Right? Uh, I'll give you a statistic just to think about. Total global aid is $100 billion. The European Union agricultural subsidies are about $75 billion. Total global agricultural subsidies are about uh, half a trillion dollars. Right? Some people say it's uh, as much as a trillion if you add up all these, uh, you know, not direct subsidies, but some indirect ones, export subsidies, for example. So uh, in comparison, global aid is very, very small relative to the need. And then you've got to think to yourself, what can we then expect from it? And when aid is applied properly, it can do a lot of good. We see that in terms of humanitarian aid. We see that in terms of uh, a lot of things that were done in the health area. So some of the improvements in longevity and improvements in uh, child mortality rates and so on uh, are direct effect of this kind of thing. <coughs> um, and so, of course, the best way to reduce child mortality, we know our economists who study this health economics tell us, is to raise per capita income. Right? When you raise per capita income, all kinds of other good things follow. You know, households have less children. Uh, they tend to invest more of their savings in those fewer, fewer children. That means that they demand better education, they demand better services from their governments and so on. And you enter virtuous cycles. Uh, and the opposite is true when you have, of course, independency and you have uh, uh, governments that are not stable and you have then uh, people's incentives and people's uh, expectations going in an opposite direction, which is having more children, uh, less investment in education and health because they don't see a future, less savings, things like that. Okay. So um, by and large, in the literature, there are about three positions on it, uh, three large positions. Those people who argue that aid is the only way we can get from here to there, look at the Marshall Plan. Why are poor countries poor? They are capital poor, right? In other words, poor people tend to consume their savings, or they don't have savings, because all of what they earn goes towards consumption, and therefore somebody else has to save for them so that you can get growth started. Why? Because growth is get started because you have people that invest. If you have nothing to invest, how can you uh, get growth started? So essentially what you do is transfer our savings over there so that uh, uh, poor countries can get their uh, growth started. 
you can think of the Marshall Plan and all those kinds of things as uh, sort of the, the ideal, ideal uh, situations. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, and there are many, many others who write about this, like the big push. We need to push these poor countries out of poverty into self-sustaining growth. Why hasn't that happened in Africa from that first slide uh, is where the aid pessimists come in. Uh, they argue that, well, it's too little, it's too fractionalized, it's uh, little coordinated, uh, and therefore, uh, aid hasn't done very much, but they go further. Some of them argue that aid is the problem. That is, aid dependency is the problem. So uh, how, what are the mechanisms by which this works? You have a bad extractive government. Uh, let's call him Kim. Uh, and Kim is getting aid. And since aid is fungible, it's just money, he can divert all of that money to his key supporters in order to keep him in power. He doesn't really need to stop being extracted. Why? Because there's somebody who's coming and allowing him to be even more extracting because he can buy generals, he can buy his elite supporters, right? So you can read people like Dambisa Moyo and so on who argue these kinds of things. So aid is no longer just this thing where you and I do uh, often when we see somebody who is in need, which is to give that person, you know, some of our savings in our pockets, right? And we feel good because, you know, I help somebody who's in a tough situation. But it's bad if that person becomes dependent on me or if that person takes that money and drinks with it and meets his children when he goes home, right? I know I'm using a silly, terrible uh, example, but Dambi Samoyo and other people argue that the aid itself is the problem because these people have no incentive to make the types of reforms that get self-sustained economic growth going and those other good things to follow. Better institutions, elections at the beginning, but elections are not democracy, all those other institutions that lead to sort of uh, self-sustaining democracy. Uh, another way in which aid can be bad can be all those other stories. Uh, it keeps bad policies in place. Uh, it uh, can be a, a, a displacement on domestic capital. That is, it can distort markets uh, and, uh, and, and so on. The, the, the other position is that we expect too much from aid. Aid is really good in terms of humanitarian aid and other things. Uh, and uh, um, it, it doesn't hurt, uh, it, it may help in many, many situations. It all depends on what you want to focus on. Um, but in general, um, uh, the evidence is that aid may be bad in many situations, and aid may, in some cases, also have very good outcomes. Um, I think my time is up. Uh, yeah, I can wait for question time to maybe get into. Yes. You can take it later. Yeah.
Okay. Uh, anything final I'm trying to think uh, of saying? Um, think about think about what happened in China. Right? Uh, China made some institutional changes. We've seen probably the largest reduction in poverty in that small uh, space of time in probably global history, right? And, uh, and so uh, what did China do? Uh, was there any, anything about aid that we can learn from that tells us something about the Chinese story? Thank you. Thank you. Um, next is Yong Lumei, uh, former director of Burad uh, and diplomat. He has been the Norwegian ambassador to Lusaka and Dar es Salaam. He was also the director of uh, the OECD's Directorate for Development Cooperation, DCD, in Paris from 2010 to 2015. Welcome, sir. Thank you. This just correct him on one figure, it's the global figure is actually 150 billion, not 100 billion dollars. <laughs> so, but but it, it, it doesn't really, uh, it, it's, it's of no material importance for the line of argument. But, but, uh, so um, I'm going to uh, move from, uh, from the sort of uh, big global aggregates uh, and the theoretical discussions, uh, fascinating as they are, into sort of more, okay, What's uh, what I what I normally then call the the forty billion kroner question? To a lot of what uh, how do you know what what are the big questions relating to the forty billion? And to to a donor, typically the biggest question that's a question we don't have to ask. And that's a question of how much. Aid because we have, uh, so far we have predetermined that and said that that is, that's if you can, if you can calculate, if you can, if you know basic arithmetics, then you know the level of aid. Because we've decided to give 1% of what we earn as a country in aid. So, and that for the time being is in the range of 40 billion a week in so, so that, that first big, of course in, in most countries this is the biggest question. Uh, and then uh, the next questions you have are, what are you going to use it for? So you've got 40, you've got 40 billion. Uh, what are you going to use it for? And uh, then you have a, a second question, which is where are you going to use it? And a third important question, who are you going to work with? In order to uh, in order to spend those forty those forty billion in a meaningful way to to achieve uh, results, uh, and uh, so, so when I started, uh, when we started many many years ago in this uh, in this business, uh, we used to find the answer to that quest those questions by. Sending people by going to Africa or to Sri Lanka or to Bangladesh uh, 
and then uh, look at uh, what uh, would be sensible things to do. And the question of where money was used was the biggest political question. That changed, has changed over the past uh, decade or so. So uh, the Norwegian political debate about aid today is largely about which areas, which sectors, rather than uh, which countries to use it in. Uh, so we've moved from being somebody who primarily worked in, uh, with uh, governments in uh, Tanzania and Zambia and uh, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh to working primarily with global alliances, global co uh, coalitions and multilateral organizations as uh, the main partners. So uh, we, meaning that we, so okay, we decide where we have a 40, out of those 40 billion, we're going to spend 6 billion on global on health. And then uh, we don't say, and then we're going to Bangladesh uh, and uh, discuss with the Ministry of Health how to use that money. Then we go to Geneva to, uh, and, and or we decide how much money are we going to give to Gavi, how much money are we going to give to the Global Fund, how much money are we going to give to UNICEF. And then it's there, and then we participate in the boards of these organizations to discuss and agree on how is that money actually going to be used. So we have become largely a, an indirect donor that works through global mechanisms where focus the focus is on sector topic. Uh, so we have a big uh, health engagement. We have a big, with uh, the partners that I mentioned, we have a big educational engagement with UNICEF, uh, Global Fund for Education, Education Cannot Wait, and a couple of others, uh, sort of the main instruments, mechanisms for, uh, for implementing, uh, for implementing uh, Norwegian support. So, and about 60% of, uh, of those 40 billion are used in this way. So we channel them through, uh, through, all, through other partners. So we can discuss afterward whether that's smart or not. Uh, the jury is out. Uh, it's uh, possible to have different opinions about that. But uh, for a small country, sort of generally, it's possible to argue that for a fairly small country like Norway, it's probably not a bad idea to work in global alliances like that uh, if we want to achieve something. And in some of the areas where we have invested, we've achieved enormously good results. I mean, the Global Vaccine Alliance is an e enormous success story in terms of contributing to dramatic decreases in child mortality, also in countries where the economic indicators would not lead to that. But Malawi is a, ca is a case where, where clearly the, uh, the country has seen dramatic improvements in children's lives in spite of the fact that the economy has not grown. So it's uh, it's been a country cyclical way of using aid, one could, uh, one could say. So that's, uh, that's 60% uh, roughly speaking. The other big thing we do 
is that we work with uh, Norwegian NGOs. So, slightly more than 20% of the Norwegian aid budget goes through Norwegian NGOs. Flyktninghjelpen, Brødekors, Red Barna, Kirkensnødhjelp, Norsk Folkehjelp. They work in very different ways. Some of them are, uh, are then again part of global alliances, so Save the Children uh, uh, is, uh, is part of a global alliance, so they, they again work through their global partners. Uh, Norwegian Church Aid is more local, uh, is more, more engaged in, uh, in countries. Apart from then, so I've, I've talked about health, I've talked about education. The, the, th the, the two other big chunks of uh, the aid budget is humanitarian aid. Uh, there, the Norwegian uh, civil society organizations and two of the UN agencies, the World Food Program and, uh, and UNHCR, are the biggest partners. And there, uh, there is more money going directly to uh, two countries. The last of the big chunks of money is the Norwegian for Rainforest Initiative. Again, a um, topic uh, chosen because of uh, the because uh, it's part of uh, dealing with dealing with climate. Uh, the ground idea, a ground idea of the Stoltenberg government was that one of the areas where Norway could make a difference was to try and create an incentive structure for uh, saving the global, the big rainforest areas in the world. So a, a fairly substantive part of the Norwegian aid budget was set aside for that, for that purpose. Um, and that brings me to the, the last thing I was asked to say a couple of words about, which is how do we actually, or how do we organize this? Uh, and uh, in Norway and in uh, well, there are there are uh, there's sort of there is always a political level. Uh, then there is normally a technical level. Uh, how countries organise this differ enormously. Some have fully integrated administrations. So a lot of countries like. Uh, Denmark, uh, Netherlands are fully integrated administrations, so they have a Ministry of Foreign Affairs that deals with all aspects of their uh, of their uh, development of uh, their development cooperation. Norway is known, uh, and other countries have chosen a, a model where you have a ministry dealing with uh, with policies, and then you have a uh, an agency or directorate uh, dealing with implementation. Norway has been known in the international aid uh, world as the old man out to make up its mind. So we've tended to, to sort of fluctuate and shift between uh, different models and, and sometimes make choices about very odd hybrid models that nobody else has ever thought of. Uh, they've normally not lasted for a very long time, but, but they've sort of... Uh, uh, it's it's been it's been a, a strange area for experimentation uh, institutionally. The we sort of expressed through the borderline between 
on the one hand the Minister of Foreign Affairs, on the other hand Nora, and on the third hand uh, the embassies. The when aid was sort of up to a certain point, when would that be? Would be around early two, yeah, two thousand, early two thousands. Uh, there was a big decentralization tendency, so the the more and more of the responsibility for the management of Norwegian aid was moved to countries, to embassies or missions. Uh, that of course fitted a system where you had uh, where a lion's share of the aid was bilateral. When that changed and the lion's share of the aid became multilateral, that didn't work. So authority was moved back to Oslo and have sort of shifted a bit between Minister of Foreign Affairs and Norad. Today, Norad manages about half of the Norwegian aid budget. Yeah, a bit more than half, 20, 22, 23 billion, I think, something like that uh, for, uh, for 2020, so about half. Uh, there is uh, the rest by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and uh, a 10% uh, share, roughly speaking, by the Ministry of Environment. And there is a, an emerging discussion about uh, whether or not uh, other sectorial ministries, like health, like education, uh, should uh, have the same type of role as what is given to the Ministry of, uh, of Environment uh, in managing the respective parts of the Norwegian aid budget. So, uh, is it does it make sense to have a health specialist in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, when we have a Ministry of Health? Uh, does it make sense to have it educational experts in the Ministry of uh, in the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs when we have a Ministry of Education uh, in Norway? That's um, a dangerous discussion seen from a Ministry of Foreign Affairs perspective. Of, uh, of course, so, and I, being being outside now, I don't have, I don't need to have any opinion about it. But so, uh, forty billion spent on uh, some reasonably, I mean, the the areas that Norway has selected: uh, education, health, uh, emergencies, uh, uh, climate, makes sense. They are uh, important. They are important global challenges. The mechanisms we have used, yeah, uh, one can certainly discuss uh, the exact mix, and one can discuss the degree of professionalism uh, in uh, in sort of the exact decisions about how to spend, how to allocate the resources among the partners. But again, overall, uh, one has tended to choose sensible partners with a proven capacity to, uh, to, uh, to deliver results. So I, I'd say overall, uh, the 40 billion are used in a decent way with decent partners produces decent results, uh, not uh, not perfect. I, I do think that uh, the, what, what world we live in uh, next year, we'll, uh, we'll see, uh, and that will, 
could easily provide new challenges to uh, to the the non -qu the question which we don't have in Norway, which is the question about how much are we going to spend on aid, and we see that creeping in in a way uh, indirectly uh, in the form of questions about uh, how big a share of uh, the costs of uh, of the Ukraine war should be borne by the uh, by the Norwegian uh, by the Norwegian aid budget. That could, of course, we could we could be moving into an area where the one percent will be more challenging to uh, to defend. The other big question to me, I think, is that the the global aid system that we have constructed is, of course, a Western-dominated system. Also, the U. Also, the U. Uh, also, the UN uh, development system is a very Western-dominated system, and the the big international NGOs are all big part of of, uh, of of the Western world. And the 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 other the, the big challenge to the globe to global aid, I think, is sort of how this global aid system is going to adapt to a world which looks very different from uh, the world which it was constructed to uh, to serve uh, some uh, one, or one or two generations ago depending on um, on uh, which part of it we talk about i think i'll stop there and then uh, because we 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 were hoping to discuss a bit also seeking to build better economics. Uh, she has a master's in social economics from the University of Oslo and is currently working in statistics in Norway. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, so I'll start with you. Um, you organized a decolonizing aid event um, in November. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very interesting discussion. Um, and I know you have some thoughts about uh, if aid is working uh, and what the pros and cons are. Could you please tell us a little bit about that? I think a very good introduction has been given by both Elida and Leon. So I will just build on what they have already presented. Uh, I am a more pragmatic person you would say, like I am not very much an aid optimist or an aid pessimist. Uh, I would say in many instances that aid does work, especially when it comes to emergency aid in places where uh, something has happened, like Haiti under the earth earthquake, that has had an immediate effect. Um, but what I would perhaps um, um, be more in doubt about is the long-term effect of aid and how positive it is to the development of a country. Uh, in many ways, I would say that it is problematic to assume that aid in itself can lead to economic growth and that aid in itself can kind of give a sustainable economic growth. 
so again, like uh, one of the first things that we've had in economic development at the university was like Jeffrey uh, uh, Sachs, I think his name is, and then you have William Easterly, where they're like very two opposed economists who are like extremely uh, optimists or a pessimists. Um, but uh, on the native sides, and there are many like native sides related to aid, and uh, as you have mentioned, Dambisa Moya has heavily cr criticized the aid industry in Africa, where she wrote a book uh, called The Dead Aid. And uh, what she basically says is that the aid, uh, the aid industry wants them to exist and for there to always be a need in, in Africa and uh, by kind of like creating conditions or by enabling structures and institutions and systems in those countries, they can continue to exist and uh, rich countries can continue to influence uh, through the use of aid money, the politics uh, as they want. And so what she said is that trade, not aid, should be the mantra. And again, that is a bit problematic because by assuming that trade takes the place of aid and that individuals themselves and mi uh, migrants or the diaspora of uh, those countries can come and suddenly become de uh, uh, development uh, agents is uh, like saying that is what will solve all the problems that ex exist in African countries. And so, so yes, there are aid is uh, good in some instances, as Professor Inga said, and in many aspects, it is also very challenging. Thank you. Um, so I think I'm going to come to you <laughs> um, first, at least. Um, my question would be, can we say that uh, Norwegian development aid, uh, does it fulfill its core purpose? I know it's, it's a very big question, but. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, it is important to, to start from the right. I, I've always said that aid, and I've, I've spent my life working on it, aid cannot generate development. But aid can support development. And there's a big difference, there's a big, and so, so from that perspective, I, I think development assistance is not a bad, is not a bad, is not a bad word because it, it says something fundamental about what you can, uh, what you can expect from aid. And that is that it can, it, it, to me, uh, sort of, if, if you, at, at a very, very sort of, uh, Simplified, it, it can it, it can do two things. One, it can keep people alive while countries are trying to figure out how to sort out their problems. You say that's the uh, that's what you do with humanitarian aid, and that's what you do with that's what we've been doing largely in a country like Malawi, for example, where we've we've sort of contributed to. Uh, increased level of education uh, to reduce child mortality in, in a stagnate in a largely stagnating economy so so, so that that's one and it, that's not a bad thing to do I mean uh, to uh, help uh, a substantive number of million of people having decent lives 
that the economy of their countries would not permit them to have. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to do. So that's. Uh, well, thank you. That, that's. Uh, and then, of course, there are the uh, the things, the development challenges that aid can also help deal with. But I think only, it, generally speaking, in a context where the country through its political system, its institution, its private sector is driving in the is driving in uh, in a developmental direction. And there, of course, uh, uh, subsidized infrastructure can help speed up infrastructure uh, development as China do today, as we did massively in the 60s and 70s and, uh, and 80s. It, it can uh, help bring important strategic competence to countries with natural resources as we did with the with the now uh, not so uh, fashionable anymore oil for development program since we've become uh, started questioning the wisdom of extracting oil <laughs> of extracting oil still uh, to for for countries to become better positioned to negotiate better contracts with uh, global uh, with global oil companies i think so so there are areas where you can we can build strategic uh, build strategic competence where norway has something we have experienced because not because uh, wise people at the universities have uh, <coughs> researched about it but because we as countries have experience and experimented with ways of solving them and found ways that work and then some of those lessons can be um, can be and then i think there are also areas where it can be used to create global alliances to deal with important issues i i do think that aid has done an important has an important share of the progress that's been made in the fight against genital mutilation in African countries. So this is an area where, where, whereby creating sort of alliances of uh, aid-financed alliances between international actors, national actors, civil society, multilateral normative agencies, we've been able to move to move the agenda. I think there are areas with. <coughs> With women's sexual rights and so on, where we can see that that is. So I think there are quite a number of areas where aid can, and then of course we tend to dramatically over uh, sort of think that aid can solve all problems. Of course, it cannot solve all problems, and most problems in the world it cannot solve. And where we have I think failed most miserably is not when we've tried some, there are, f there are very few white elephants from the Norwegian aid industry actually, there's one, one or two probably which is fascinatingly few compared to sort of uh, wrong in infrastructure investments we made at home. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but when we've thought that we could build nations uh, on extremely unfertile grounds for nation building then uh, I think we, we can see that we have massively invested and we have achieved very little. Thank you. Um, 
parents don't want their girls to go to school. We don't understand why that is. You see the point I'm trying to make? Billions of dollars are spent on something that doesn't occur on the ground. Bill Easton is full of these stories. How is it that we are unable to get a $2 bed net to people in rural areas in Africa where they're dying of diseases that are uh, mosquito-borne? But all of them have a cell phone card. Where do they get that from? Right? And that is one of the problems. Again, nothing to do with NORAD or Norway's aid programs, but aid in general is perhaps not being done in the way that we think delivers the bang for the buck that we as taxpayers give uh, the aid programs. Now, aiding itself is not bad. Like I said, you see somebody suffering, uh, it's assistance. And not giving is immoral, right? I mean, we are all religious in some sense, and, and we also buy ourselves some conscience by giving aid, right? Or giving uh, something to a suffering person. Uh, so how is it then that we can do it better? It's a, it's a trillion dollar question. <laughs> uh, and I hope that good minds can think about this, not just in the context of Norway uh, and the 40 billion, but in the context of this enterprise that we talk, call aid. Uh, I have a recent paper, I'll be very, very quick. I've shared it with Hilda. I asked a very simple question with a student of mine. Does more Norwegian aid go to countries that have more equal access to health? We just picked health because that's a normatively good thing. Uh, not just because of COVID, but we also think that governments that give equal access to health to its population, and this equal access means does the poorer people in the society have as equal access to health as the richer people? And we find that Norwegian aid flows are smaller to countries that give more equal access to health. And the answer here is then our aid money, even though it's well-intentioned because we want to solve health problems, it's not going to areas in which the bank for the dollar is likely to be greatest. So that's just one point. Thank you. Um, I'll, I think I'll stay with you. Um, yeah, keep the mic. Next oh, question is for you. <laughs> um, in 1970, um, Africa had 10% of the world's poorest population. Um, today it's 75%, and some researchers have indicated that uh, it may increase to 90% by 2030. Um, how can foreign aid be directed towards achieving sustainable growth? Ooh, <laughs> yeah, that's the trillion dollar question, but I think uh, uh, lots of bright minds are working in this area. One of the people that I pay particular attention to as a scholar is uh, Esther Duflo and her uh, Banerjee and people that won the Nobel Prize for this very innovative way in which they're trying to find out if you're going to spend a dollar, where is it going to get the largest uh, return for you? Uh, and uh, that's probably how uh, we uh, need to do that. That's probably what a business would do when it starts up in a country, let's say, uh, selling mobile phone cards or whatever. Um, so uh, so it's, a, it's a big question. 
and I think, uh, like Jung said, uh, you know, it's it's assistance, development assistance, ultimately how governments behave in the sense that what do I mean by behave? Uh, what ruling elites are able to do in terms of setting up institutions uh, that are uh, uncorrupted and are inclusive uh, and that's a large question that I think uh, uh, aid itself might not be able to handle on its own but aid in partnership uh, with other sorts of global institutions and, and uh, norm changing uh, 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 programs uh, can try to achieve. Uh, we saw the Arab Spring, you know, 20 years ago we would have thought that this kind of thing was impossible uh, in the Middle East. We saw the Arab Spring, obviously it didn't achieve everything, but uh, places like Tunisia uh, were successes and, and maybe other places. So, so these are things that hopefully uh, can lead to, to larger changes. Um, so institutions, that's a, that's a very, very big thing. Uh, but we can't go about aid in the way that we went about fighting a war and tried to build a government in Afghanistan because they are competing interests. Um, Actually, the book written by Banerjee and Riffle for economics was what got me into economics in the first place. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's very nice that you mentioned it. And I would like to comment on the point that you mentioned on the fact that where do you get the most buck for the money or the dollar that you have? And uh, a lot of research has shown that many uh, donors, when they want to provide money, they rather go to those places where they have... Uh, uh, where the cost may be too high and the profit or what they would gain from investing or like supporting institutions will be too low. And uh, from an economic perspective, it would be much more profitable to go to uh, areas where you have already some form of established institutions that are reliable, that you could fund so that they could progress. And that is the issue with aid. It's kind of like a double-edged sword, I would say, because in many of these countries, what they do when they kind of like discover that they're reaching a threshold where their aid would be cut off if they kind of like outperform or give uh, provide good results on indicators, then they start willingly to slack. They don't they don't progress as they could have done because they know that their funding would be cut off. So in many ways you could say that aid kind of enables complacency both on the government side because they don't have a, they don't have a large um, sense of accountability towards their populations because they know the donors will, will come and give money to them. And so it's like a double-edged sword. Where does the line go? Yeah, that was my question. Um, you have practical experience. What would your input be? Well, it, it, it's an enormously big, enormously complex question to which there isn't one answer. I think the most important answer clearly is that aid is not... I mean, Africa's got some for them, or many African countries have got some fundamental developmental challenges that aid is not going to solve for them. 
and the main problem to Africa's development challenge is not going to be aid. It's going to be African initiatives, it's going to be African institutions. That's, that's how the world ticks. So, so it's, uh, we shouldn't, uh, or we must not pretend that uh, it is global aid that's going to solve Africa's problems. Uh, that doesn't mean that global aid cannot help uh, some African countries to, uh, to solve some problems. I think what, what you're pointing to is, of course, the, the sort of, is it uh, need or merit, uh, sort of need or capacity to utilize. And the aid world has been uh, torn between, I think, torn between the two as uh, criteria for allocating uh, resources. Do you allocate uh, resources to places where the need is biggest or to the place where the potential for uh, results is biggest? And those will be different places, generally speaking. Uh, and I, I, I don't think we should uh, pretend that there is a simple answer to that question. I don't, I don't have a simple answer to that question, certainly. Now, I, I, I uh, so I agree very much there. I think on the, on the, the sort of aid dependency trap. I think part of it. I agree. I used to have big quarrels with a good friend of mine, Professor Sam Wangwe at the University of Dar es Salaam, the, the senior professor of economics in, in Tanzania when I lived there, and said no country should have more than 20% of, of its budget as aid, I used to say. And he used to say, no, no, that, that was when Tanzania had 45% of its uh, budget as aid. Now I think it's down to less than five probably. So, so it's sort of, so I think that there, there, are, so, there are some challenges both to countries and to donors when countries become too dependent on aid. I think that's, so that's, but should that be an argument for not helping uh, starving people in, um, in Somalia? I, no, it isn't, <laughs> but, it, but it is, a, it's something that we as professional in the areas need to be acutely aware of, particularly if it become a lasting uh, and I'm, I'm not at all worried about the other part of it, that people will be sort of, uh, to, sort of be worrying if they are approaching the boundary line for receiving aid. Because then aid is so unimportant compared to the total economy that it would, it would only be for very marginal areas of society that it, was real, it really matters because it sort of given the, the size of global aid for an up, then you're into the upper middle income uh, category and for upper middle income countries aid would typically be a very small share of the economy. I also agree very much with you that there are some, there are of course particular moral hazards in situations where we have multiple objectives. I think that's a, that, is, that is a reality, and I think Afghanistan is, a, for good and bad, an illustration of that. I, I, I do think we, we achieved some, I mean, the, 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 uh, the, it's not obvious that African women with a, uh, Afghan women would have protested against not being allowed to school if it hadn't been for the fact that we and other donors had invested massively in, 
in women's aid, in girls' education in Afghanistan. So, so clearly that's contributed to some social change uh, over time and may provide a guide to areas where, because I, I do think that in, in, in the most difficult situation, it's important to see sort of where can we, where is it possible to achieve results? And what are results that are likely to last uh, sort of a bit uh, regardless of poli political changes? And, and I, I do think uh, that uh, educating women is one of those investments that it's never a failure. Uh, it's got proven long-term positive effects in many areas uh, and it's possible to do it under even some of the most difficult circumstances. So I think there, there, e even in, in very difficult areas there are things that it's possible to do uh, that makes sense, that makes life easier and better for people and that it also provides the country with a resource that it can make great use of in the future. Thank you. Um, that was actually very good. Thanks. Um, investing in women is never a bad idea. Um, Hamdi, it seems like you were thinking about something as you were listening. Was there something you wanted to add? Um, not really. I was just thinking about what you said. Um, I do agree on the fact that just because you have certain institutions when they start to you know, get closer to the threshold, they start underperforming to maintain their uh, their funding does not mean that we do not go and help when hunger, uh, when people are dying of famine or when the crisis, when crisis strikes. Uh, and uh, I think it is very good that tonight it was illustrated how important it is to kind of like talk about when we talk about aid, aid, what do we want to achieve? I think like that is a very important question that many kind of forget to ask themselves. And that what, and what happens when we don't ask ourselves that question is that we start conflating different issues relating to aid without them necessarily contradicting each other or they're like addressing different areas uh, where that pertains to aid. And uh, so yeah. Uh, thank you. So, still with you. Um, what would you say the various or main factors uh, are that hinder the greater effect of what needs to be? This has already been mentioned by both of you. Uh, so, I would, um, if I have to think about concrete examples on what the main uh, hindrances to the impact of development aid could be, then I would uh, definitely say the first one is corruption. Corruption definitely affects the impact that aid has uh, uh, on the target group, and uh, it is twofold. On one side, the money does not go to the people that it was intended for, and the other side is that it kind of like enables dependency on that aid money because it is easy to kind of like uh, use it. There are no strict controls or reports done how the money is received and how it is used. And what happens is that there are like no productive uh, uh, actions taken in addressing those issues. So you just have, uh, you know, like uh, participants in those projects who 
apply for those grants or funding and they don't really do much about it as long as they get the money and perhaps they build schools in some villages in Somalia or whatever, but if nobody's going to that school, like, at least it looks good on your report. They have built something and where did the rest of the money go? It went somewhere else. So I think in, like, corruption in two ways, it definitely is detrimental to the impact of development aid. And the other thing, as has been highlighted here many times, is the lack of security that also impacts uh, how effective aid could be, and the lack of political stability. As long as you don't have any good institutions that can channel those money, the money to the areas that are needed where there's no like uh, trust between uh, the donors and the, inst the institutions that they are working with, then I definitely think it has a very large impact. And also, like corruption and uh, lack of uh, bad institutions, lack of political stability, they're all like correlated. Yeah. Thank you. Um, do you want to add something to that? No, uh, yeah, this, this is sort of the, the, for me the big thing is what else can we do beyond it and in many cases I think I'm not an expert here but I read other people who uh, delve into this uh, aid is sometimes a cover for other types of things that uh, the rich countries uh, hard decisions that the rich countries don't want to take uh, for example ask yourselves why we don't have a free trade agreement in agriculture we have a free trade agreement in everything except agriculture uh, what do poor countries have to produce? Uh, food, agricultural goods. Uh, and uh, think about the countries that have high taxation on capital exports, so, or profits earned abroad, right? So what's the incentive of a rich person in, let's say, Washington, D.C. Or, or California to go and invest, uh, start a new company uh, somewhere else in the world, or another factory somewhere else uh, in the world. Uh, if the taxes on his uh, money on the broad is very high. Now these are things that governments, rich country governments, don't really want to compromise too much on. Uh, I think in Norway it's 20%, or in the OECD it's 20%, right? Uh, what is the incentive for rich uh, companies then to go abroad from Norway uh, here? Um, I mean, it's also an internal political question about the export of capital, right, uh, and export of jobs, and uh, those kinds of things. So there are hard choices. Uh, uh, there are lots of uh, barriers for trade from Africa, for example, on the grounds that it is uh, some kind of uh, health hazard or something like that. Uh, but these are what typically economists call non-tariff barriers. Uh, there are bananas from Africa, for example, uh, can't be imported into the EU uh, because the African farmer has to spray some kind of thing to keep some kind of bug going. I've forgotten what the, what the, what the spray is. The chances of dying from an overdose of that, uh, that uh, particular kind of spray is something like being struck by lightning two times in your lifetime, right? Uh, very, very, very small risk. Why and who is preventing African bananas from coming into the market here? 
The answer is big agricultural companies that would much rather put a sticker saying Dole on it and send it from the United States uh, than, uh, uh, so this is the nature of the trade agreements that Norway is in or the EU is in or, or the WTO uh, rules uh, and so on. So these are the kinds of nitty gritty things that one might look at carefully which would give a much bigger impact on actual development because it incentivizes production in these countries that actually in many cases can, uh, can produce many of these goods very, very well. I should also add very, very quickly, two of the countries that will join the rich nations if their growth rates continue uh, like they have are sub-Saharan African countries. One is Mauritius and the other is Botswana. Uh, Botswana had a little bit of a down dip because of the AIDS crisis, but Botswana had been growing at 13, 14%, much higher than China had been growing. Uh, Botswana has a Volvo plant, you know. Uh, you never hear about Botswana, but it's a, it's a rich country. And it's going to be joining the OECD uh, in the foreseeable future. Mauritius is growing rapidly. Mauritius is a country that is made up of three or four religions, uh, four or five ethnic groups and languages, all those problems people think are problematic, but they aren't because there are places that are growing rapidly uh, with these conditions. Uh, and so, um, um, yeah, my larger point is that we should look at these larger structures as well, uh, and particularly the problem of agriculture because when you think about a poor country, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, you're talking about a country that's 60, 70% agriculture in the GDP. Um, thank you. Um, so this has been sort of you know, touched upon, and, and I, I will mention that this is a very superficial um, conversation because th I think we'll need a seminar that goes in depth if we're going to you know, properly talk about it. But um, there was, I mean, not just in Norway in the past year, but in many cases within, um, you know, economics and uh, different disciplines, there have been conversations about uh, the third-party agents uh, in terms of, you know, uh, organizing aid uh, should be removed. Um, but, and of course, as you mentioned, uh, there are different organizations through which that religion uh, aid uh, organizes or um, allocates aid. So is the way Norwegian aid organized working? And if it's not, what's, what should be done to uh, <coughs> make it better or make it work? You, look, you were looking at me, were you? <laughs> with, with accusing, with accusing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I, I do think Norwegian aid is working. I think it is uh, producing reasonably good results. Not as good results as it could in all areas, but reasonably good results overall. Uh, but I, but I, do, I do also, as I, as I said uh, towards the end of my, uh, my opening remark, I, I do think that the, the biggest structural question that is facing the global aid industry 
is uh, what I uh, sort of the the question of uh, the, the, the all, all the go-betweens and how the go-between, who the go-betweens are. If you have if you have Norwegian taxpayers on the uh, in one uh, end of the chain, and then you have. Uh, uh, local actors who are always the ones producing the result because no no donor agency no multilateral agency very few international ngos would normally do development they are they are financing development they don't build schools they don't hire teachers they don't uh, give health services so so and uh, that whole system of um, go-betweens needs a, 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 a deep structural reform, I think. And the overall in the global industry, I'm becoming, I'm increasingly convinced that this, the, the, the amount of the global aid budget spent in capitals uh, is too high. So too much is spent in Oslo, too much is spent in uh, Geneva, too much is spent in New York and uh, Geneva, uh, and London and some other places. So so and the the big question then is sort of what, how do you do localization? How do you actually transfer resources and power more to the local actors, given that corruption is there? Given that uh, governance challenges, how do you actually do it? To me, that is that's the biggest question that we should put our minds to trying to solve over the next decade, with the clear objective that as much as possible and a much larger share than at present of the aid should find its way directly to those who are actually doing the work on the ground, be that a local NGO or a local government. Thank you. Um, so we're, uh, I'm sure the audience has a lot of questions for you, uh, but then I'll just go through some agree disagree questions and then we'll open answer. Um, aid does not work where there is no good governance. Yeah, I think. <laughs> agree. Partially agree. I think I would. I would have to say because humanitarian aid has to work, even where there's no good government. Um, okay, humanitarian aid should be aimed at helping countries reinvest in resilience. Agree. <laughs> Disagree. It challenge. I, I would lean more in your direction because it challenges. It sort of it becomes a question then of what's the definition of humanitarian aid and what's the borderline between and how do we sort of uh, have a continuum uh, between humanitarian and long term. So I'm, yeah, I, I'm leaning in that direction. Um, I said disagree because um, humanitarian aid. I take it as emergency aid, and I believe that it should be adapted to the purpose that it was meant for. And it is not always um, 
a solution to look for resilience in every situation. Sometimes it's just about you know uh, reaching a target with no without having any end goal in mind or long term vision. So that is why I say disagree. Thank you. Um, and and I, I agree very broadly that the best kind of aid would be one that has gone as humanitarian aid, perhaps. Let's say you're, you're responding to a, a cyclone or a hurricane. But the aid that is the knowledge, the, uh, what is left behind of aid is something of value to that society that is more long-lasting. That's how it Okay. Um, countries like Norway should use cooperation and diplomacy to solve problems such as conflicts instead of using aid to put pressure on governments. Uh, I just don't think that aid dollars can put pressure on governments. <laughs> it's, uh, how many billions was Putin willing to lose? Uh, just to get what we wanted. So, yeah, it's, it's a very tricky thing. The donors believe that they can, uh, the donors believe that they can use aid in ways that pressure governments to change, but I think that's, that's a very, very unrealistic uh, expectation. Governments that want to change, change without that pressure uh, because they have something to gain from it. Uh, oftentimes they are recalcitrant simply because their own political survival is far more important than any dollars you can put in front of their face. So, uh, so this idea that the IMF or the World Bank can you know, get conditions, uh, that's just we know from decades of research that conditionalities just don't work because governments do what they want to. Uh, partly because you, know, you have the timing consistency problem. You agree to everything before you get the loan, and you do everything opposite after you get the loan. Okay. I would say agree uh, that uh, the government should not use state money to influence or to get uh, to influence politics and governments as they are, because I am anti-neo-colonialist. <laughs> Uh, so uh, for me, that is like the existence of neo-colonial stru structures, which countries using their money to influence politics in developing countries. Uh, and maybe I've read all the literature. Perhaps I have not uh, really delved much into uh, uh, this topic for many years. But what I remember from my bachelor's in development studies was that some countries, uh, rich countries, they have used their aid money to uh, influence um, areas, areas that African countries should prioritize. Such, I remember there was this case of uh, giving funding to a university in Tanzania, and uh, the researchers there wanted to uh, uh, research a topic that was of utmost relevance uh, for the local people in Tanzania. But the donors had an agenda in mind and they were like, well, we have to do what we ask you to do because that's what the money spent for, even though the money could be spent in a better way. So that's what I was thinking about when I said they shouldn't use their money to influence. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
you're asking deep questions and uh, we, we of course we're leading into we're going we, we are not uh, obeying the order of saying yes and no. we're very bad uh, at uh, obeying the order of saying yes and, yes and no and I, I, so I think I, I would say three things about this one is uh, sort of the general lesson is of course that uh, cutting aid does not lead to change in politics two it can nevertheless sometimes be the right thing to do. I mean, if, if a government is too bad, then at least supporting that government may be a bad idea. But not to, sort of, but because it is a bad idea, not because you believe that that uh, Mugabe was going to change. I mean, we stopped supporting the Zimbabwean government when Mugabe went mad with his people, uh, and that was a right decision to do. But it, not because. We necessarily thought that that would change the way Mugabe behaved, but it was still right of us to stop our support to the Zimbabwean government. Uh, and then I think influence, not influence. Uh, when, when uh, would you would you be of the same opinion on uh, on on giving higher priority to girls' education than to? Uh, <laughs> So, so because what's political and what's not political is not a is not an e is not an easy. Uh, so, so I uh, the, the the borderline between what is ethical and what is political, to me sometimes is a, is a challenge. And I definitely agree. I just think that we should be honest about it and not pretend that we're doing this uh, out of pure goodwill, but we also want to promote our own values. Yep, no, I agree. We should be honest about our values, but, but we should not pretend that we don't have values. Because that's uh, that would be a falsehood, because we do come to it with values. Mm. And last one. Uh, assistance should be designed to strengthen the agenda of the African free trade area. Uh, yes. Any free trade area would be good. Yes. <laughs> <coughs> agree. Sounds good. Okay, that's good. We all agree. That's fine. Um, anyone has uh, a question? Yeah, I have a question. Yeah, I'm recording it. Yeah, or you can say it and I can repeat it. Yeah, uh, it's the only question that they all say. It's not one specific, uh, specific one, whether it is. I don't remember all your names. But it's a general. You all say in a certain way of, yeah, uh, um, what I mean, um, the aid they build those who are in power to do their own interests, just to, to be there for the power. So I mean that the aid cannot go in another way, cannot go in the government through who is there. Is there another way that the aid can reach there by not going through the government? That's, that's my question. Yeah, is there a way for aid to reach, um, guess, the people or the necessary? Those who, yeah. who, um, who need it. Yeah, those who need it. Yeah. Or the government, or yeah. those who are in the power yeah. in, that, in that area. Yeah, is there any way to direct the aid where it's needed without going through the government? Yes, there are. Uh, clearly, there are, uh, of course, uh, NGOs, uh, civil society, sometimes directly to local governments. Uh, so, so that's possible. It's got its challenges also, uh, but it is possible.
no, I would agree. My experience, my experience has been from kind of like uh, studying and looking into the Somali uh, aid industry that uh, many NGOs do actually operate on ground with, uh, without uh, going through the government. And it is as you have said that they have their own challenges, but they also go directly and yeah, uh, work with the people directly. In, in, in fact, a lot of private charity, which is a very large chunk of global charity, uh, uh, occurs without any kind of government involved. But when we talk about official development assistance, generally it has to go with government approvals because it involves the Ministry of Health or the Ministry of Education in that country or something like that. Yeah. Now local governments also can be directly accessed. Yeah. But that's a good question. Yeah, it was in room and go details is that they want to keep in that and that and make it a lot of details. I get the question from you. Presentations and a lot of very interesting uh, points in the debates. Um, there are so many things I would like to comment on, but let me restrict myself to uh, a couple. Uh, first, a very specific one. Um, the example you mentioned about the Ethiopian Airlines. Um, I'm suspecting that most of those products of flowers are Dutch owned, as uh, what we see of. Uh, flower companies in Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda is all, all of all the ones I know are, are owned by the Dutch. So um, and an aid perspective there is like Mestegran is one of them. Uh, that there are many. Uh, I don't remember which one of them. Uh, maybe it was Floris or one of the chains uh, had an uh, aid initiative. Uh, where they gave some small grams of the profit to, uh, to, to the Maasai women. Um, I think it's, uh, it's a bit problematic. Uh, you have these huge uh, uh, international companies um, uh, giving some small amounts to, to the locals while they could uh, uh, contribute more to the local economy. Uh, like I mean, it's it's great to create uh, jobs, but ownership is much more important. If they at least could have some local ownership of some parts of the production line, that would have such a uh, uh, such a richer uh, effect on the local society. Uh, then, in, in a more broader perspective, I'm thinking now we, we Norway has been doing aid since uh, our foreign ministry. Foreign Ministry created the, the policy in 1950. That's now more than 70 years of aid. And it's a bit peculiar that we are still asking many of the basic questions that we have asked since for at least around 60 years now. And um, I would like to refer to Stan Berkey, who is the author of the book People First that provides a lot of uh, very crucial information relating to 
these questions, and it was written in 1973, I think. It's, <laughs> it's quite a long time ago. And um, I think one of the crucial points uh, to what we're talking about is the access to local knowledge. We don't have sufficient local knowledge. Uh, and um, we, we, need, we need to get more access to, to, for example, African knowledge, which is problematic because it's extremely unavailable. Partly because of we are biased due to the practically uh, under-evaluation of people of African origins. It's one of the huge reasons for that. And then um, here we are asking ourselves these questions today, and we don't even think about having a representation from the receiver part. Uh, you know. So uh, those are some of my thoughts. Thank you. Um, any questions? Yeah. Uh, Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. My name is Terra Obestoli. I'm a Zimbabwean political activist. Uh, okay, I would like to start by thanking everybody for what uh, the brilliant submissions, profound submissions. My question is a very short one, but I'm sure it's going to be a bit tricky to all the speakers. But you might have touched a little bit on it. I went, well, I've alluded that I come from Zimbabwe, a country where, you know, there's everything that you want. You might think of bad governance, corruption, and, and you mentioned everything that you want to. So I wanted to say, in such a context where we have bigger challenges that are available for everyone to see, how do you strike a balance? between, you know, supporting the people who are suffering, which is the aid, basically, and also not wanting to appear as if you are supporting the regime that is oppressive and, you know, uh, corrupt uh, to that extent. Because also the people who are receiving the aid must be grateful unconditionally. But whenever they sort of feel like you are somehow aiding the regime that is bringing the suffering to them, they might not be grateful. So how do you strike a balance uh, between such a political aid? Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, I mean, to anyone who can grab it, and I'm sure everyone is a, can have a bite of the chair. Thank you so much. Well, so the, the political uh, answer, of course, is I'm very happy uh, to get that question. No, it, it, it is of course. Uh, I think we've touched upon this earlier. It is one one of the one of the most challenging questions to the international aid system is how what do you do to what can you do to help people in countries where you think the government is an enemy of the people and not a friend of the people. Sort of what what can you ask? Uh, because you, of course, you cannot work with the government. That's, uh, that's, uh, but that's the easy part of the answer. And then, of course, uh, I, I don't think there is any general. The, the, the easy next line answer would, of course, be that. Then you look for other actors who can help you get directly to people, and who that be that would, could, would, of course, uh, vary enormously from, uh, from place to place. But typically, it would be uh, 
it would be civil civil society uh, or local or, or local communities. Uh, it's it's not a it's not a perfect solution. Solution has got its own challenges, but but it's it's the only way we found around that dilemma. Sorry. Yeah, uh, so there's a lot of guilt by association because the person on the ground who sees, you know, the aid officials coming in their SUVs uh, during the day, even if they were doing good things, with well-intentioned things, uh, you know, in the night the soldiers come and uh, they behave, you know, uh, in a way that uh, people don't like. So that guilt by association is there because in general aid has to go through the government. Uh, previous question. Um, uh, yeah, so it's a very tricky place. Now remember, you had something called the Cold War until about 1990, <laughs> 1990, 1991. And during the Cold War, it was very, very clear that aid was buying some kind of, if you if, if it was aid from the Eastern Bloc, it was buying some kind of political support for the Eastern Bloc's uh, um, agenda. If it was from the West, it was buying political support for something either American-related uh, or Western-related agenda. And if you look at voting uh, uh, in the UN, you can see a very clear pattern between people getting aid and voting with the US or voting with the West or whatever. So after the Cold War, things changed. So during the Cold War, you have a very tainted aid. Uh, in fact, you can't even do studies with that kind of data from pre-1990 pre, uh, uh, because you had the strategic, geostrategic objectives of the West. Not so much Norway, but Norway being part of the team of the West going to places. Um, so after 1990 is a different story, but still, you know, you take the Middle East and you look at uh, what kind of aiding goes on by the West uh, in that area, right? Whether it's North Africa or um, uh, Central Asia, uh, it has a lot to do with American military interests. It has a lot to do with American oil interests. By American, I mean Western, because some of these companies, are, of course, have ownerships, uh, including the oil fund, really. Uh, so uh, so it's, uh, it's one of those things. Aid is related to strategic interests of the, the donor nations, and that's very well established in the literature. Whether it's an IMF loan, whether it's a World Bank loan, whether it, because the voting, voting is done in Washington, um, whether it's uh, bilateral aid uh, deals uh, between governments to governments or some of the multilateral decisions to go uh, to do a project somewhere. It may have uh, geostrategic interests. Uh, Djibouti is a country in Africa now with uh, two bases, right? The Chinese and the Americans. Is the politics of Djibouti not affected by that? Uh, I find very hard to believe. A tiny country. Uh, last question. 
thank you and uh, thanks for the presentations. Um, we talked about uh, that aid is westernized uh, and also that aid is not um, properly addressing the, the issues and not um, going to the people that need it most. Um, I was wondering what's your advice for Norwegian NGOs to work on that? I think um, those issues are connected. I think one report, and I think you have touched that also, is that we need to bring the receivers, the beneficiaries, on the table, not only working with local NGOs, but also to change Norwegian or international NGOs to allow people that receive or used to receive um, aid to be in more leading positions, um, be it over a board or yeah, leading positions. So just wondering what's, what's your uh, take on that? Very quickly. Yeah, no, I, I fully I fully agree. Uh, I uh, sit on the board for Save the Children International, uh, the, the alliance where Red Barna is and one of the one of the battles we've had there is exactly about that. And starting from January this year, the three largest recipients of Save the Children International aid have sort of mem members of the board representing, sort of coming from those countries. And I think that's a, that's a beginning of an important change. Uh, I, I do think that getting voice from aid recipients in the international aid system, a much stronger voice for aid recipients in the international aid system is an important part of the change that we need to see. I totally agree with you. It is important to include those who receive the money in the discussion on how the money is going to be used. And I may be a little bit biased here, but I also think that more women should be included in those uh, boards and in those uh, positions so that, yeah, because statistically in developing countries, women are shown to care more for the sustainable community than men are. And men are more, uh, inclined to be corrupt compared to women. Not to say that women are not corrupt, and yes, but uh, yeah. <coughs> so those are like uh, the thoughts that I've uh, made up. But inclusion is important of every type of people, yes. Uh, yes, uh, so the, the literature talks about this as uh, so the ownership uh, thing. So uh, people should the aid recipients should take ownership in the program so that you know you don't get these very pre-planned, uh, uh, you know, every shoe is the same size fits all uh, uh, strategies. Um, yeah, uh, so we have, you know, time will tell if these ownership uh, uh, agenda uh, takes root and, and bears fruit. Uh, the problem is that even ownership can get hijacked on the ground, so, so, you, so it's, it's hard to tell it, uh, how, you know. But uh, I'm very optimistic. Uh, I'm very optimistic uh, about uh, um, uh, getting aid uh, to, be, uh, to work better, because I think uh, given the end of the Cold War and serious thought around how to make it uh, work better, uh, we are beginning to see some changes, and I think Esther Duplo and people like that have really shown that uh, making it more effective is a possibility, and 
Thank you so much, uh, all three of you, for coming and joining us. Uh, either do we have, uh, can we show the video? Or? No. Okay, but we will post it. Uh, there is a, an additional video. We'll post it in the event, so please uh, go in there and uh, check it out. But for now, I would really like to express my gratitude for all three of you making time and, uh, well, sharing your knowledge with us and your opinions, of course. Um, and thank you, everyone, for coming. This is a part of a series. That this is an event not particularly on aid, but we organize Africano every month on the last Wednesday. Uh, and there are always topics relating to Africa and different, uh, within different disciplines. So you're very much welcome to follow us on Facebook and follow what other events uh, that we have. Thank you so much and thank you.